0: You're listening to the GamesIndustry.biz podcast. I'm James Batchelor and I'm joined this week by... Brendan Sinclair.
1: And Rebecca Valentine.
0: We have so much to discuss this week, but we will be starting with Call of Duty Modern Warfare. Now, Activision would no doubt like us to draw attention to the fact that it grossed $600 million in its opening weekend, making it the fastest selling entry in the franchise's generation. But that's not what people are talking about. Um, Call of Duty has... I nearly started the, the story when I wrote this. Call of Duty has once again attracted controversy. But looking back through the series history, that hasn't attracted that many controversies. But when it does, it goes big. This year's controversy um, is... It has been decried as American propaganda by users and critics, particularly from Russia. This is because there is a mission in the game called Highway of Death, which would be hilariously overdramatic if it wasn't actually... The same name given to a particular area in the Persian Gulf from the Persian Gulf War. In the Call of Duty version of Highway of Death, players do a sniping mission, it's a road covered in burnt-out vehicles, and you're trying to stop terrorists or something. I have to have to confess at this point I have not actually played the mission. But in the pre-run sorry, in the build-up to the mission, they claim that the 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 area is called the Highway of Death because Russian forces bombed it during an invasion, killing anyone that was trying to escape the area. This is all set in the made-up Middle Eastern country of Erkistan. What's got people rankled is the real Highway of Death, officially known as Highway 80, is a stretch of road between Iraq and Kuwait, where the US led a coalition of forces in the Persian Gulf War that killed everyone that was trying to escape down that area including it it was reported civilian refugees and children and just horrific it was actually reported as a war crime and I'm massively kind of like summarizing this as a big complex issue Activision's defense is it's fictional it's made up it's not real critics argument is no hang on it's very similar to real history you are rewriting history making it seem like You know, that such an atrocity was a Russian thing rather than a US thing. Um, And it's understandably upset a lot of people.
1: I believe this isn't the only instance of a real-world event in Call of Duty: Modern Warfare that got no. Twisted. Apologies, there are no. I there yeah, are. More, yes. I don't think. I think this is the one that's getting the most attention. Um, but if I remember right, just kind of reading some of the articles that were was going on, there were a couple others too. And in those cases as well. It, it, it was, again, like a similar name and a similar set of circumstances, but then the perpetrators of the event had been switched around or something had been changed to portray the U.S. in a better life, yeah. if I remember
0: correctly. And this is this is a part of my issue with the Call of Duty series anyway. So what made this particularly kind of disappointing for me was I remember covering, um, I think it was Game Informer interviewed um, the creative director and the narrative designer and so forth like months ago, and they were going, and it was during the whole is this game political, that, that debate. Hmm. And they were saying, well, no, it's not political because it's not real. It's like none of the governments are real. None of the countries are real. It's all made up. It's all about the themes of modern warfare. It's about the the topics and the, the real horrors of modern warfare. We're going to be showing it from different perspectives, loads of different perspectives. You know, if it was political, it'd be all from one perspective. But Call of Duty historically, and I grant you, I've only played about five of them. Are all at the risk of quoting Team America, it's all very America fuck yeah. <laughs> like it's more so even more so than Tom Clancy novels. Like it's it's very much kind of like the Americans can do no wrong, they're the good guys, they're the ones that are gonna save the world. Like it just it it's that It's quite narrow-visioned in how the games are presented. It is always the Russians or terrorists or Middle Eastern terrorists or some sort of corrupt nation is the bad guy. And the American and British forces are always the good guys. That's how it is. But to an extent, that's how you sell a game like this in the West. I think the fact that it's touching on real history and very close real history and relatively recent history. The Persian Gulf War was only what 20 30 years ago which in the grand scheme of human conflict is is you know just five minutes ago I, I, I can see why this this got people riled up like I, I grant you yes like fiction has always drawn from reality in order to make it more feel more real feel more believable but I think just the way this has been done it sounds poorly handled
1: yeah I think generally it. If you, if you are a young person, so I, I did not have classes in high school or college on the Persian Gulf War or really any recent conflicts. I, I think, I mean, there's a whole thing to go into there about, you know, the American education system and what we consider worth teaching and how, how recent, more recent events tend to get underscored um, and put very much in the perspective of, of like an American first uh, lens. But I, I didn't learn about any of that in school. So if I a naive high schooler, you know, not not knowing anything about these events, um played Call of Duty, you know, I assume it's all fictional. I don't I don't think anything about it. But then if I am in a conversation with people and somebody, I guess for some reason in this conversation mentions something like the highway of death, the instant idea that triggers in my head is the game that I have played. Like I feel like I know what that is. I automatically have an association with it. And so there's like maybe a large contingent of people who will play this game who will not think too much of it and assume it's fictional, but will then have this idea in their head of a real world event, but everything's reversed. And I don't, I mean, this is not like a think of the children kind of thing, but it is, it is kind of weird to have this sort of like revisionist thing going on in the middle of an otherwise fictional game and not note somewhere that it's like based on events where this thing actually happened or at least sort of. Mark it out as the rest of this is super fictional, but this one thing is kind of not, but also kind of is. It's it's just really weird. It's a weird choice.
2: It is, and I, I think one of the reasons that this kind of keeps happening, uh, where you know they play fast and loose with this stuff, and and people get upset about you know it being American propaganda uh, and all that is is that it's like most AAA video games. There's sort of a player fantasy that Activision and Infinity Ward are looking to fulfill. And the player fantasy for Call of Duty is basically you're a super badass soldier boy and you're, you know, the honorable, resourceful.
1: uh, You're the American hero.
2: Yeah, you're the American hero, and the the normal everyday people have no idea how cool you are, and how just awesome badass you are,
1: and how tragic you are.
2: Yes, also that, and they use they they, they like you know ripped from today's headlines kind of uh, issues are appealing to people. I mean, you you've. Ubisoft has been doing this for a while, just trying to make their their games seem relevant to the you know whatever people kind of hear in in the news or come at them through. Oh, everyone's talking about that. Yeah, let's have a wa- waterboarding scene in Call of Duty. Um, and it's it's just sort of like you can't you can't have this really massive AAA game where moment to moment everything is about being fun and fulfilling that fantasy and then kind of mix in all this real world horror and, you know, even just war itself arguably and, and come up, you know, with like a, a completely defensible, consistent uh, treatment of that all, all the time because you're, you're fulfilling a fantasy. like it is a fantasy. This is not what war is actually like. So we're already taking, you know what how many people have died in war. Uh, i'll I'll guess a lot. so you're you're taking like one of the the fundamental boogeymen of humanity, one of the the things that has dogged us since we had civilization. Uh, And you're like saying, you know what? This is a fantasy. This is fun. We're going to put you in the middle of it and it's going to be a great time. And like, that's messed up. And, and all this discussion about like the proper treatment of real world events and all that is all just sort of like, well, how messed up is it? There's where on the spectrum of like making war and killing people, lots of fun is this one going to land?
1: And I think there's a weird, weird disconnect too, right? Like, especially when, and I think we may have talked about this before, like between the multiplayer of Call of Duty, the the game, the multiplayer game, the thing that people are going to be playing for hundreds of hours for the, for the whole next year until a new Call of Duty comes out, the thing that they're going to spend most of their time in, and then this short six to eight hour single player campaign. And it's weird that these are two things that are part of the same game. And I... I've, I've heard, I, I couldn't cite to you who exactly it was, but I've heard other people who make similar games that have kind of like a serious single player, I think someone did this recently, and then a more goofy multiplayer, very clearly say, these are two separate creative visions. Like the multiplayer is for goofy fun times and the single player we're trying to tell a story with. And yeah, it's using the same mechanics and, some, and the same systems and stuff like that. But our but our visions are different here. But Call of Duty, like they, they've always been like very, when you try to talk to them about it, they, they like talk about it in very inconsistent ways. Like there was the whole thing with the white phosphorus, like being a reward in the multiplayer. Um, and they'll tell you like, that they're trying to tell this, this, like you said, like a serious, you know, real story and get people to understand the horrors of war. Nobody that I have ever met or talked to or seen on the Internet that plays Call of Duty plays it to get a taste of the horrors of war and historical accuracy. Unless they're using that as like, you know, a bad faith argument. Um, they're playing it because it's fun. Like, they're playing it because Call Call of Duty is fun. Call of Duty is fun to play with friends. Infinity Ward has made. Th- they've gotten really, really good at making this, this multiplayer live game that people can play with their friends. They can, you know, play for long amounts of time. It, it looks great. It's, like, super polished pretty much every time it comes out. People love that, and that's what people play it for. And it's just – it's weird that they're trying to tell this serious story, and they – but they don't seem to be giving it like a serious amount. They say they're giving it a serious amount of care consideration, but the end result does not reflect yeah. that. And it's very frustrating. It's,
0: it's annoying for me. Like, so I, I'm not a massive fan of Call of Duty. I've dipped in and out of the series, but like genuinely the, the stuff that would appeal to me, and I grant you, I may be in the minority here is yeah. Like a game that explores the horrors of war. So I've been reading up on like, you know, there's a section where you play, uh, believe one of the characters was a child soldier soldier when they were younger and you flash back and you see what life was like from that point of view that to me is an interesting topic and particularly a, a risky topic for a AAA game a AAA blockbuster game to do you know like this isn't an, an, a, a real evil in this world this is what it looks like and really kind of put people in that perspective but as you say Rebecca the the vast majority of the emphasis is on this fun multiplayer here here's a nuclear bomb, here's a white phosphorus, go kill as many people as possible, rather than doubling down on that these are the horrors here's of war. There's a
1: scene where you get waterboarded yeah. and have to, like, like tr- take, take breaths with the push of a button. <laughs> like, did you... <laughs> Did you build to this? Is there and I, and I, I mean, I, I have not played the single player, so but I read a crap ton of reviews, and I didn't read a single... I, I just read piles of reviews for this for a critical consensus. I did not read a single review that thought those elements were handled well.
0: No. And this is the thing. Like, okay, so I, again, we've we've confessed that we haven't played this Modern Warfare, this Call of Duty, but I have played them in the past, and I, I cannot remember one instance of them tackling a serious topic like that In a way that worked, in a way that made sense, in a way that really had gravitas. What what about that time that they did the mass shooting? Oh, that was it. That was was coming. (laughs) We could feel that coming. This is the thing. It's almost poetic that exactly ten years on from No Russian Infinity Ward have once again pissed off Russia. Like it's just almost, almost like they did it. Like is it to mark the anniversary? I don't know. Like. I remember I remember back at the time yeah, that 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 being controversial. And I remember that okay, that was actually my first Call of Duty. There was so much fuss around Modern Warfare 2 and the No Russian level, I thought, right, you know what? I need to try these, I need to see what the big deal is, I need to see if it's being overblown. And I played through that level and Yeah, it was like quite horrific. Like and I kind of think I see what they were going for of, look, let's put you in the middle of this awful situation that triggers everything in your proper front and centre in, in the horrors of war but the the justification for it right like, you know the spoilers for a 10 year old game because you a cia agent are found dead at this the scene of this mass shooting and are identified therefore russia gets to declare war on america it's just to enable that fantasy of you know right now we're defending the american suburbs from america from russian tanks that have somehow got into america it's just it's there's no purpose there's no it doesn't feel like it's been handled with responsibility. Well, it was sort of like disaster porn, that
2: that whole game. yes, and I did play through it at the, at the time, where it's just, you know, the same way people will go see an end of the world movie because they want to see New York get you know hit by tornadoes or something, or the way they used to anyways before CG numbed us all to <laughs> to disaster. Uh, hmm. Yeah, more modern warfare too. The the pitch was well they weren't like touting no russian on the whole so that was a that was a huge uh point of interest in the talk around it but beyond that the actual marketing pitch was kind of like yeah you're gonna battle through the suburbs that you recognize target call of duty demographic you're gonna be blowing up your your local fast food joints and and
0: Modern warfare, modern warfare 3, like, they kept on reversing, like, flipping the M in the logo. So it's like, it's about World War 3. You're going to take part in World War 3. And that is very deba- disaster porn. That's very Michael Bay. I think the issue is that the, the disaster porn movies, the Michael Bay sort of stuff, they don't tend to relish in the horror quite as much as the Call of Duties do. So I can't recall... Yeah, okay, watching something like, I know, White House Down, where terrorists are just gunning down everything outside the, uh, the White House there isn't like close ups of civilians being like you know murdered and blood exploding out of their chest like it doesn't there's a there's a detachment there so there's a healthy detachment that says this is a fiction this is for entertainment we're not relishing in this we're not we're not enjoying this too much like this is this is just this is the story this is how it's going and we're going and we're moving quite rapidly through the scene to get to where this is going whereas no russian and you couldn't even run it was such a slow walk through that airport like and and again, I haven't played. I haven't played the new Modern Warfare, but I imagine the waterboarding scene isn't exactly brief, brief or brisk. Like it's just proper, kind of almost savoring it, which it really shouldn't, in my opinion.
1: Can we talk about their response?
0: Yes, please.
1: So I. Shout out to GameSpot. They did an interview with uh, narrative director Taylor Krosaki went up yesterday a video and uh, written out um over on GameSpot. Uh, I really encourage you to go read the whole thing if this is a topic that interests you because it's it's a really, really well done interview, especially like uh Tamur Hussein just he did not pull punches on the questions, and I appreciate that but i they asked them the two interviewers asked them about multiple um, things with the narrative in modern warfare. um, And they, they kind of honed in on the highway of death thing. And I, I was very frustrated with their responses because they, they said kind of broadly, they said they at first answered. So Tamar asked them if they had anything like really impactful to say, if they felt a responsibility to say something about the horrors of war, about what war is. Um, and they responded that they had a tremendous Kurosaki said that they have a tremendous statement to make. And then in the following kind of rest of his answer, basically said that that statement was raising awareness about things that happen in war. Um, like he, he talked about that the goal is to educate, uh, to enlighten the player base about people like the main character, Farah. um, uh, if it encourages them to look more things up or do more research or again, build empathy with people whose backgrounds, cultures, and ways of life are dissimilar to their own, I think that's a good thing. But he couldn't ever and that sounds nice, but he couldn't ever really pinpoint like whether they had a position or a message. It was just raising awareness that these horrors exist. And then at the kind of at the very end, it got sorry, it got it got pretty ridiculous because again, he's talking about education. He said multiple times, this is not some kind of propaganda. This is not propaganda. Um, but then he said, I think that this is a thing that we're really building awareness for. When I was a kid, I learned a lot about stuff through things like schoolhouse rock. You know what I mean? I was singing songs and I was learning about real world things, but in an entertaining fashion. And so I think that for people today, if we learn about some of these things, even while we're engaged in an interactive experience, I think that it's still valuable. Call of Duty Modern Warfare is not schoolhouse rock, folks. Whoa. That's... I just...
2: This year is, has produced some pretty wild headlines <laughs> and like
0: that one, that one might top the list.
1: <laughs> I don't think that one tops the list, but.
0: I, the bit that got me out of his out of his response was the whole, um, oh, you know, people, we were touching on real topics here, real history, real, real themes. And if people want to um, research this and look up more of it, then we're helping to raise awareness. Okay, fine. I kind of see where you think you're going with that. But again, to come back to the highway of death, anyone thinking, oh, wow, I'll research the highway of death will then discover that it was actually a US-led coalition, not Russian forces. And that, not to harp on this specific example, but that, that is a particularly odd and jarring choice. Like if you want people to research, if, you, if your goal is to raise awareness of what the, you know, the realities of war are like and to encourage people to look up more about history, then represent that history. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that would be a really
2: uh, interesting defense for Holocaust denials. Uh, yeah, <laughs> to, to to oh, well, people will look it up and then they'll find out. We're raising awareness.
1: I, I guess just like, like I, I want to be clear. I Call of Duty is not my kind of game at all. That said, like if they want to make a fictionalized war story with a campaign and some compelling characters, and then do a really good multiplayer, that's great. Like like fantastic keep making those they obviously sell i don't think they need these waterboarding scenes and these re history revisions and all these other weird like things that if they like i i don't know who I I, I I we know who's making these decisions but i don't i don't know like how many people are sitting around weighing in on these decisions but i feel like if you if you put them like to any kind of like meaningful scrutiny there's immediately a maybe we don't need to do this maybe we can just kind of you know make a make a normal like shooter campaign without like there's plenty of other shooter campaigns that release every single year that don't have all of these questions around them and don't revise history in in obvious but also not obvious ways like
2: they don't want to be just another shooter though i mean
1: that's right but they don't but this isn't what makes call of duty stand out for people again people don't I I assume people do, but very, very few people buy it because they know they're going to get a gritty, dark depiction of the horrors of war. They play it because they want to play Call of Duty with their buds
0: few enough people play the single player to the point where they actually dropped the single player last year like that that's how yeah. few people play it which is why it, which is why it's almost amusing when this when the single player can create this much of a fuss like it's it's, it's almost like you know like shadow marketing for the single player campaigns like oh have you not played this one this one's got something really controversial in it like i agree with you rebecca they don't need to put these scenes in they don't need to do these these controversial things these make these very odd and, you know, potentially, like, you know, very kind of, not risky decisions, because risky is, is, isn't always a bad thing, but make these um, perhaps unwise decisions. They don't need to do those, but they don't need to stop doing them either. Again, $600 million in the opening weekend. This game has not been hurt by this, and here we are, a full week after um after uh, the game actually came out, and it's the first thing we're discussing on the podcast. Like, it's, it's, it's working for them. Yeah, I, yeah, I, think I mean, it's... that's
1: kind of the... That's the, that's the big takeaway, right? Like in the end, nobody cares. They could do a bad single-player campaign. They can do a good single-player campaign. They can do a controversial single-player campaign. Yeah, we'll still be writing pieces about it ten years from now. But no, in terms of sales, that's not what matters. So it, they can they can basically do whatever they want with the single-player. People will play it. They'll love it, and they'll they'll move on to the other thing. And it doesn't matter, and because Call of Duty is great at the other things it does, regardless of you know if if you are into the kind of game that call of duty is then call of duty is like the game for that like it's really good at it and so it doesn't matter it doesn't matter to infinity ward or activision or any of the people who play it they're still going to buy it and they're going to enjoy it so it doesn't yeah
2: and that's actually just like no rush and the thing that gets me the most about this is that you're you're rattling people's cages and doing all this kind of shock and provocation and you're not doing it for any really greater end except you know selling copies of the game like there's you're not you're not saying anything of any importance the we're raising awareness is like oh my gosh w- war is bad where where else could i ever get this you know this message especially when it's conveyed to me in the course of a super awesome really fun triple a shooter L- like It's, it's just such a insincere, disingenuous, you know, transparently contradicting itself motivation. I, I, War is
1: bad, but I can, I can be a hero in it. I can be the hero. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, that, it sucks. We're, we'll be writing about it 10 years from now, but they'll have already come out with 10 more campaigns by then. It was a it was a busy week for people who listen to uh, financial calls. Uh, a whole bunch of people dropped their financial results this week. Ubisoft and EA were the two that I did, and I had kind of a fun time. Uh, we've already talked a little bit about Ubisoft's nonsense last week because they delayed a whole bunch of their games. Um, but there was fun sort fact of
0: a- on that. Sorry, fun fact on that. Just to interrupt briefly, those the games they delayed have obviously today come out. It's been announced that um, they're all going to be cross generation. Which yeah, I, th- I think I think some of us saw coming. Um, Watchdogs Legion certainly, with the amount of stuff the you know, the ambitious uh, ambition of that title, there was no way that wasn't going to be on the next generation. Oh yeah. Um, and yeah, they
1: they did kind of say that last week during the call. They said that they were going to. That, Eve's kind of uh, kind of couched it a little bit. It was like, oh, there's going to be some kind of cross generational support, but it wasn't clear what that meant. And then it was more explicitly laid out this week that they're all just going to be thrown out there. But yeah, I I thought the there was an interesting kind of theme between Ubisoft and EA that will be of no surprise to anybody, which is that the majority of the things that these two major AAA publishers are doing are live services, which, yeah, big shock. That's just what they're doing. But it, it kind of manifested in interesting ways in the fact that both uh, bo- both financial calls had executives talking specifically about having their businesses you know fueled or led by live services and digital, um, and when you look at the games that both, both publishers also laid out in a pretty specific way their release slate for next year, and for the most part, these release slates are all live games in some way. And I thought I thought it was kind of an interesting comparison for a couple of reasons, because we're looking, we're looking at the new console generation coming up. Um, we're looking at, you know, Microsoft and Sony coming out with new consoles. Nintendo's already got the Switch. And I know, I think it was like one or two years ago, there was a big, you know, fuss about, oh, the death of single players, single players going away. And it was kind of, you know, refuted that, no, single player is not going away. Um, we still have all sorts of, you know, wonderful, you know, single player stories coming out. We've got, you know, I mean, some of that... Came out with The Last of Us 2 getting delayed until next year. But there's a lot of really strong single-player games. But they're mostly being made by, like, indie developers and then the platform holders. Um, the people, the AAA publishers in the middle, and we, we're talking about Ubisoft and EA here, but I think Activision Blizzard, uh, Take-Two are also in there as well. They mostly or almost completely rely on live games. If they throw a campaign in or they have a single player in, that's really not the focus or it in some way ties into the long-term online play uh, that goes on for several years. And I think we saw some interesting uh, conversation about that, especially in the Ubisoft call. Um, There was at one one point when an investor asked uh, Guillemot whether or not he was seeing any kind of backlash um, from users in the focus on live services, and if that maybe contributed to why uh, Ghost Recon Breakpoint and Division 2 didn't do as well. And he said that that wasn't the case, um, but it was the case that they were, rather than, you know, considering whether they ought to start making more single-player focused experiences, they needed they did need to start uh, integrating story more more thoroughly into their online uh, their online games and their their campaigns and their live games and stuff like that. So I thought it was sort of just interesting to see that AAA publishers specifically seem to be where the need for a bunch of consistent, successful live games are. Like they don't, I don't know if they don't have the resources or if they don't trust that they can do full single player experiences and have them be successful. Um, but I, I don't know. I just, I, I thought it was interesting.
2: Yeah, it's, it's particularly interesting to me because like EA has Jedi Fallen Order coming out like this month and that already is like sort of an aberration for them. Like It
1: is and they don't they don't seem to expect it to like what are they saying six to eight million copies is their expectation? How is that compared with Battlefront?
2: Battlefront I think they said did what 25 million between the two?
0: So maybe 15 uh, million and 10 million?
1: Total they sold I think uh 33 or 32 million of Battlefront. Oh. Let me look at that really
0: quick. I've, I have a vague memory, I could be completely making this up, but a vague memory of uh, Battlefront 2 being expected to do at least 10 million. Like uh, around or you know, shortly after launch or in the, in, the, in the few months after launch. So, yeah, six to eight million isn't huge. I mean, Jedi Fallen Order, it feels like a game. We need a Star Wars game because of the Star Wars film coming out. And also because if we don't make Star Wars games, we lose that license. So, quick, let's make a Star Wars game. It's very much uh, the Amazing Spider Man, the Sony reboot of, uh, of video games. <laughs> really? In that regard. Wow. Um, I, I would not think that
2: you would put Respawn Entertainment on something like that. Um, I mean their, their Titanfall uh, I, 2 I, I, campaign got so much single player like so
0: much acclaim not, for a single I, player campaign uh, I'm the, not saying it's going to be a bad guy I, I'm sure that Respawn have done a great job and the more I hear about it the more I'm actually looking forward to it because it's more the sort of Star Wars game I want to want to play but for a for a AAA publisher who is focused on as Rebecca says like on these live services on multiplayer games that you can expand over time like this may well have been like a pitch from Respawn um yeah, you know, the saying, We really want to make a Star Wars game. You guys have got the Star Wars license. Why can't we? You know, could we do this? And EA could be like, "Yep, you know what? You guys are good. Do do that, and do, let, let's see how it goes." Like, it just doesn't feel like a decision that the current EA would have made, given their priorities. They
2: were doing the uh, the Amy Hennig Star Wars thing, and that was going to be primarily, you know, a single player kind of adventure, and then that yeah, but no, that got scrapped. That got bumped up to Vancouver, and then
0: got scrapped. And then that got scrapped. Yeah so, and then this is the thing yeah. they've got a history of scrapping this sort of game. Well right, but I think like, I think Jedi Fallen Order which is probably ridiculous
1: because Star Wars is ripe for a really good video game story. Like come yeah. on.
0: We haven't had one in years. Like uh, yeah, so I agree. I got, I, ma- I may be wrong on it. I may be wrong on it, but my my reading of Jedi Fallen Order and again I may be wrong is this is a game that we need a Star Wars game that comes out alongside the film. And we need to keep sure, make sure we're making the most of the license. Like, so I'm not. That's not to take away from the final quality of it, because it probably will be an amazing game. But I, that I suspect, to me is how I read its existence.
2: I suspect it was in the works before the Vancouver project was finally shelved. I, I think I'm guessing there was a time when EA had two primarily single-player Star Wars things in the works, and. I mean that's like entirely guesswork. Just because when did when did the Vancouver one finally get shelved? Early twenty eighteen.
0: Uh, Vancouver was scrapped last year. Hennigs I think was scrapped two thousand seventeen. Yeah, I
2: don't I don't think the Jedi Fallen Order thing like that doesn't look like some a new essentially a new game put together in under two years to me.
0: No fair point. Fair point um but yeah so no it's
1: EA's launch lineup for next year though so they've got they've got Jedi Fallen Order like okay they've got a single-player game coming out I think if they didn't put out a single-player Star Wars game after all the nonsense we've been through I think people would riot um but look at next year so next year they've got they've got the usual um their focus their focus for next year is going to be um Ultimate Team Madden um you know the usuals uh they're going to they're going to push the sims a lot it sounds like again another live game and then they said specifically that their shooter their, like their shooter i guess they need a shooter every year next year is going to be apex legends yeah like that that's that's very surprising it's not surprising it's a little surprising to me i don't know like not it, it like seems weird that
2: not like an apex legends 2 just like
1: no no just just, just, just apex, apex, legends apex legends as legends. is Okay. Um they and they said they're trying to build it as a 10-year business, not a 1 or 2-year business, which that part doesn't surprise me. Um but that came alongside the fact that they're not shipping another Battlefield game until fiscal year 2022, which is that begins April 2021. So we're not getting another Battlefield game for a while. Um, same for
0: same for Dragon Age, which a yeah, lot of Dragon people no doubt be upset about.
1: Dra- Dragon Age is not coming for a long time. No. Um Dragon
0: Age is not coming at all. By the way, will be closed by then.
1: Yeah, and oh, then they I don't, mean I don't they're mean going. It. I really to... hope I'm
0: wrong on that. I don't. Mean I hope that.
1: you're wrong on that too. We need another Dragon Age. Um, but they also said that they're going to add another sports title to their usual slate of releases um, that they do every year, like a new, a new sport or an old sport. I don't know.
2: I have a few um, ideas so... on that one.
1: They did also say that they have exciting remasters of fan favorites, including the Command and Conquer game we've already disclosed. So it could be it could be a re- reboot of one of the old sports franchises. Hmm. But what do you think it is, Brendan?
2: I think and I don't I don't think EA has tried this in at least a decade. I think they should make a basketball game. <laughs> okay. Uh, actually um, um. they need to bring back skitchin. No.
1: <laughs> no,
2: I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Last last one, and this one actually is serious. What I think I don't know if it's if it's popular right now as a sport, but I do think um aggressive inline skating like uh, a Tony Hawk. <laughs> Cause there was only one game and it was by acclaim and it was actually a whole lot of fun in the early, yeah. early two thousands, like post Tony Hawk extreme sports video game boom. And it was, it was really good. And I don't think skate four is going to be like, I don't, everyone wants skate four and, or it is four. Everyone right? does
1: want Skate Four. It's yes, not Skate.
2: It's th- skate th- they actually made a Skate Three. That-
0: oh, yeah, I don't they know. made a Skate Three. No, they made a Skate Three because Skate Skate Three famously they had to start printing it again because PewDiePie was right. making videos and so many people were trying to buy it. Uh, um, so a is lot, is lot of hilarious. people, a lot of people right. want Skate to come back, and I think
2: that that seems like kind of likely. But I'm just I'm sort of played out on the, the skateboard video game things. I would like to see an aggressive inline successor.
0: It's I be
1: do footage, want to point right? out your... your oh, that'd be great.
0: <laughs> like they they did Quidditch World Cup during the uh during the PS2 Xbox generation, and I swear I've read that there are real people people really play Quidditch, i.e. they run around a basketball court with a broom between their legs.
1: Oh, they absolutely do, yeah.
0: So there you go. Quidditch, job done. That's the new EA sport.
1: I do want to point out Brendan's snarky basketball joke. Uh this is, I imagine a reference to the fact that they seem to have cancelled slash moved slash reimagined nba live 20 whatever they, they're they doing with that we're not getting an nba live game this year we're getting something next year but they're gonna they're expanding their vision <laughs>
2: wait, 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 wait. <laughs> so they've had what are you <laughs> they've had trouble just getting out a mediocre basketball game on yeah. an annual basis and they're gonna say you know what we need to take the scope bigger
1: I think there's a new opening in the market right now for them to do a wrestling game at the moment don't you think
2: that's like like practicing your people looking for an alternative tomahawk
0: jams before you can even dribble
2: come on EA (laughs) this is this is not how it
0: goes but the the notion of them like pushing it back to kind of take it in a new direction et cetera like looking at how thin their release schedule looks next year the fact that their big shooter is a you know a free to play battle royale that's already out like an element of this will be that we're building up to the transition of the new, the the next generation. Like, so they'll be holding off, they'll be holding off their their main, their big franchises until they know they can make the you know use the full power of the machines. I'm surprised yeah. there wouldn't be a Battlefield at the launch of the new Xbox. Like, okay, so to use another oh, example, oh, they'll like, remaster
1: like, the current Battlefield. That would probably it.
0: be it, wouldn't it? There'll be a, there'll be a Battlefield. You get and so many
1: dang HD. New
0: generation
1: <laughs> remaster ports.
0: That's not a bad idea, it's actually. You take you take, you take you take a popular battlefield game that people miss and then you remaster it using all the tricks of the new console just to get used to developing for the new console, and then you put all that knowledge into the new brand new battlefield you know fiscal year twenty twenty two. Well, the remaster strategy
2: worked really well this generation, in part because the PS4 and the Xbox One weren't backwards compatible. Uh, Initially, yeah, that's true. So I'm wondering if if publishers might be just kind of assuming it'll work this time out and in for maybe a a bit of a surprise.
1: Yeah, they all they did also mention. They said that, so they've got these remasters of fan favorites, whatever that means. They have two unannounced titles from third party partners. So I assume that's more EA original stuff. And then they have new projects going on at Motive, DICE, Bioware, and Criterion. And they also have Medal of Honor VR. They actually really do have a lot next year. It's just, we don't know what some of it is. Like there's maybe some new IPs happening, I think. we just So we don't know what they are. Um, and then so a lot of it is just, oh, yeah, we got a, you know, it's it's Madden game season or, okay, Apex Legends is getting another big update.
0: I wonder if they'll try and do a Fortnite-style black hole on uh, Apex Legends, trying to recreate what what Epic managed with, you know, the whole complete reboot.
1: Oh, they'd have to do something. I think they'd have to do their own thing. And I think they know I would that hope so. I'd hope
0: they do their own thing, but I, I wouldn't. I think I wouldn't. they
1: know that too, right? Because they, they did. The reason why their, their initial launch was so dang successful is because they they launched it pretty much out of nowhere. It was free and they got a bunch of big streamers on board to stream it. So everybody knew about it like instantly and was excited about it. Granted, that seems to have fallen off. Brennan and I were talking the other day. The last milestone we got from them was in March. They had 50 million total players and that has gone up to 70 million as of la- this last week which is not a massive jump no
0: 20 million users in t- in 6 months it's when not... you manage 50 but no that's not that's not a massive leap
1: yeah so you it's it's reasonable to to think that there's been some considerable fall off and they're going to try to rekindle that i think right now with fortnite chapter 2 having just launched is a terrible time to do that so i'm interested to see when they decide a good time is
0: it just it, it feels like they're basically kind of keeping things ticking over until we get the new generation, until we know what's yeah, happening with the next doing. console. Like, which is yeah, exactly what everyone's doing. It's why you know like Ubisoft playing it safe with you know um, not playing it safe, but like kind of hedging well, their bets. Playing it by, safe, you can say that. Yeah, playing it safe but like you know delaying games. That right, we're still going to release like Watch Dogs Legion and Rainbow Six Zombies and Gods and Monsters on the current consoles, but we'll also do an next gen version as well. So we've got something to sell to the new customers as well. Like yeah, it's it's. Everyone's kind of holding their breath for next Christmas. Um, I just seeing the discussion around both publishers, like you know. So um, we obviously have a team Slack. Rebecca and Brendan, you were both talking about, uh, as you say, Rebecca, like you know, both you know, AAA publishers now having to solely rely on live services made me uh, made me laugh because you said at one point in the uh, conversation, even like Assassin's Creed is now a live service. It is. And I remember, I remember very drunkenly at EA two thousand sorry E three two thousand thirteen. at E3 2018, when Alan Court... I wasn't drunk at this point, but when Alan Core told me in an interview that he referred to Assassin's Creed as a live service, I remember very drunkenly getting excited about this to Brendan and going, oh, my God, even even their big single-player game is now a live service. And Brendan wondering why I was bothering him with, with this. So...
1: It is though. I mean, Assassin's Creed o- Odyssey, right? That's the most recent one. I keep, ge- yeah. I keep, I keep accidentally saying Origins because they both start with O. Um, that was one of their biggest revenue drivers this quarter, like because that, that's what they got going right now. Um, and they, yeah, I, I'm interested to see once we get into the new console generation and once things steady out of it, because U- Ubisoft has had kind of a. They had kind of a rocky announcement this week with all the delays. Um, everybody pretty much is biding their time until the next generation in one way or another at this point. I am very interested to see if Ubisoft specifically ends up returning to doing single player e experiences at any point of any kind. Gods and Monsters, I still don't really know what that is. That God- seems like it potentially could be because it's kind of cute and cuddly looking, but also gods, gods
0: and monsters. Gods and monsters is being handled by the um, Ubisoft Quebec team who did Assassin's Creed o- o- Odyssey. So it will be that map, but revamped in a Breath of the Wild style, and will be essentially like the family's version of Assassin's Creed, i.e., big open world RPG with gods and monsters because that's in the title. Like it's yeah, that that that's what that game is going to be, and that honestly sounds appealing to me. Yeah, that's great. They, they, I don't think they're going to go back to single-player only or single-player games without a live service because i so i spoke to eve guillemot um Gamescom and the interview we ran on the site, he said, like, I actually specifically asked, I said, look, my favorite Assassin's Creed is actually Assassin's Creed Unity because you could blitz through that in 15 hours. Really good, well paced story, all restricted to one city. Are you ever going to do a game like that again? And he basically said, no, because you can have a Unity within an Odyssey. So they are very much focused on these big, huge, massive open worlds that they can expand with new content, that they can update, that they can. Do these events and daily challenges and weekly challenges like that's that's now their their ballpark. So it's now now if you want a new Assassin's Creed in the vein of say the Ezio trilogy, you're just going to have to hope that an, an indie or a double A studio steps up to that mark.
1: Yeah. yeah, I don't
2: know. I I miss Assassin's Creed Two and
1: Brotherhood. I miss Assassin's lot. Creed One. Yeah. Yes. Another Assassin's Creed. Yes
2: yes assassins so creed good. 1 was different it was yes. it was kind it didn't quite work but it was unlike anything else that was out there at the time and it was it was sort of like when assassins creed 2 came out everyone loved it i played i played through a good chunk of it and i was kind of like this is assassins creed 1 but they've just applied all of the kind of you know the standard Uh, mechanics and progression and stuff like that 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 just works in other AAA games and they applied it to to this and it it still
0: works but it's not interesting to me it it didn't feel as different I agree I absolutely agree I got I know five six hours into Assassin's Creed 2 and I was like this just doesn't this isn't what I wanted from Assassin's Creed this isn't what I enjoyed about Assassin's Creed this feels like it's it's Trying to you know jack of all trades, master of none, as it were. Like it's trying to appease too many people, and it's just I I I mean, the games
2: press is not a good barometer for this because we generally follow these the industry too closely and play too many games. But like I am so starved for like completely new experiences that are that I that I can play through and don't just think, okay, this is that game with this game's bit added on to it and a little bit of that thing. Uh, and and that's that's what gets me excited and interested in games now. And and Assassin's Creed was, you know, that might have been the last Ubisoft game that I was like really excited and interested in. Possibly Watch Dogs, wow. but that one really sort of fell apart once he actually got into it and realized it. it's like, nope, 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 this is this is an Ubisoft open-world game.
1: Well, the reviews for Death Death Stranding came out a few hours before we started recording this podcast, so I guess if you want a new experience, maybe that.
0: I I want a new experience, but I don't want to suffer through 40 to 50 hours of Kojima (laughs) weirdness to try and understand what that new experience is. I'm sorry. The the, the
2: best Kojima game for me was actually um, Metal Gear Rising Revengeance because it wasn't, Really, his game. It was the 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 platinum action with like the Kojima narrative layer, but sort of held in check, and that that worked really well for me.
0: I liked a uh, Metal Gear Solid Five if you completely ignored the storyline and just played it like a stealthy Just Cause. That was a good game. We're we're in danger of going on tangent, so let's move on to our final discussion. Welcome to the world of tomorrow. Sony Interactive Entertainment has made some trademark uh, applications this week for the next PlayStation, or 5. It has applied for the trademark for PlayStation 6, PlayStation 7, PlayStation 8, PlayStation 9, and PlayStation 10. Now, this is just future-proofing. This is just securing those trademarks to ensure that no one else kind of swoops in, gets them, and and charges Sony an extortionate amount of money, which makes sense, and I wish I'd thought of that first. Um, But... (laughs) But yeah, it's not really confirmation that any of these things are going to happen. But it's fun to kind of imagine. Every PlayStation so far has had a, a, a lifespan of about six years, maybe seven before the next console comes out. By my maths, and my maths are awful, but by my maths, that means we're looking at PlayStation 10 in 2050. What will the console industry look like in 2050? Let us gather our crystal balls let us assume that it's not a hellish wasteland where we're all trading bottle caps Fallout style and actually there's no such thing as a games console anymore because... Oh, come is on, on the, James. Bring all the fun out of it. <laughs> okay. Yeah, but well, it's, it's very easy to understand where the games industry is going to be in 2050 in that, in that regard. It's not. It's not going to exist. Where, would, where I just I thought it'd be fun to kind of predict uh, what a yeah. PlayStation 10 might even look like.
1: I think it would be absolutely hilarious if they kept, because they're current, looking at kind of the summaries of what they're doing with PS5, uh, Scarlet and the Switch. Nintendo goes off the rails every single time because they're Nintendo and either get away with it or don't. Um, Microsoft is attempting to innovate in various ways. They're looking at cloud, they're looking at all these other different things. It seems like they're putting together something, you know somewhat new. Um, the PS5, from how they've described it in those Wired previews so far, so far, is just a better PS4. And I think it would be hilarious if for the next, you know, however many years, Sony just kept on chugging along with that track and just kept making a better PS5, a better PS6. And so it's just another rectangular black box that plays games in some fashion in on TVs. Like, that would be hilarious and stupid.
0: And oddly, I'd be okay with that. I
1: I know. I I guess we need those.
0: Call me unambitious, but I'm very much, I want my games console to play games. That's all I need it to do. I don't need it to be a set-top box Xbox with your Xbox all-in-one entertainment system. I don't need it to be like a social platform. I just want to play games.
1: I want it to fit on my head like a Google Glass or something.
0: Yeah, it could. Be. That's it. It'll be. It'll be um, sunglasses. It'll be like if, if, if either of you seen. And please don't, if you haven't, die another day. Where James Bond wears these virtual reality sunglasses, where the blades, the the, the, the lenses James, just slide across his face. James, no, this is not your James Bond podcast. Anymore. I, I, I know, control. Yourself. I know, but
2: that. <laughs> if you start with virtual this, then we're going to have Chris in here talking Doctor Who and. I, I can't have that.
1: <laughs>
0: I will retreat to my corner. I apologize.
1: No, you're doing great.
0: <laughs> I just, I just mean it would be some sort of virtual or augmented reality where it will be all just like you know, just glasses on your face. That's that's the console. That's the console. Diana, was that a Pierce uh, Brosnan one? Oh that my God, Brendan! What the no, hell? No, 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 no! Don't encourage me. Don't encourage me. Move on.
1: Yeah, I think. I mean, I, I'm with you. I think. I think that if I was being, I the the problem with trying to imagine the future is that it doesn't exist yet right and i'm not i'm not some kind of like startup person who has all these ideas for what the future might be or whatever um but i think i think ar is kind of like the the thing on the horizon that is maybe being looked at as once we can really figure out the technology might end up being as close to the future of video games as anything um, and I, I would love... i, I Google Glass is, a, you know, a very funny joke. But I would love to have, like, a proper AR or VR headset of some kind um, be just how we play games in the future. Like, like have and having it work, like, how we imagine it work. Where we're not getting motion sick, everything's smooth. We're not just running around bumping into things. We don't have to have this complicated setup to do it. We can just, like, put a thing on our heads and play some cool shit. I'd love that.
2: Okay. So... I think, and and I'm not saying that Google Stadia is going to be successful, but I think if you look out 30 years from now, the game console experience that we think of it will probably look a lot like Google Stadia. I think uh, basically everything gets consolidated onto what is essentially now our our smartphones. And we just have one device that all of our content is on. And it, you know, like with a a a quicker, more convenient version of a Bluetooth connection, hooks up to any monitor, just wherever, your TV, your computer monitor, whatever. And all your all your computing, all your your game playing, your movie watching, all that stuff is just your your personal information box your your super smartphone with a monitor somewhere and then it becomes the what's the input and the input i think for a game console is basically you know there's going to be something like a google stadia a, a platform holder a, a storefront that uh, also has this here's your your form factor controller that you that you play through and that's basically going to be it and that that kind of bums me out because I, uh, you know, i've I've grown up with this this one form of gaming, this console form, and that's that's what I'm most comfortable with. But I recognize that it's not really optimal. and I don't think it I don't think it stays the same for for another six generations.
1: I definitely to to tag on to kind of what I said earlier, I think, The idea behind the switch that you have a thing that you can take out with you into the world and then also bring back home and have something akin to a high quality console experience. I mean, you you can quibble about whether that's effective or not. But I, I think that idea is a really good one in terms of the future of gaming. I think it's, it's similar to, kind of to what uh, Stadia is tapping into as well. Like you you have your phone and you can play these games, um, you know, out in the world wherever you are, and you can also sit at your computer at home and play them. And I think that kind of tapping into the success of mobile gaming in that regard is interesting and is also like where the future should go, whether, whether it goes there or not is, you know, the question. But.
0: I think it's just fascinating, like, the idea of how how much games changed in entertainment form, both in terms of the inputs, in terms of the output devices, in terms of everything. Like, you look at any other form of of entertainment, music. Music will always be a thing that you hear. All right, the device that carries... The the, the medium that carries that music will change, but the, the actual output does not change. Films will always be something you see on a screen. Books have not changed in hundreds and hundreds of years, thousands of years. Games in just forty years, fifty years, have gone from like, you know, the massive arcade cabinets and like really huge, bulky computers to these weird little things that we tap on our phone to God knows where it's gonna go. Like there is no way of predicting where it might go. I just think it's fun to imagine. I
1: want Nintendo to come out with more nonsense toys. I don't care what Sony does.
0: Oh yeah, if Nintendo still exists a long time the play- alongside the PlayStation Ten, I can't even imagine what sort of nonsense they all have come out with. <laughs> Ring for Adventure. Ring for Adventure. The Ring-Con could well be the basis of a future Nintendo console.
1: The Ring-Con is the console. The squeeze, Ring-Con is you the console. The co- now, now we're just way off the rails.
0: <laughs> <laughs> on that note then, that is uh, that is all we've got time to talk about this week. We'll be back next week with the latest headlines and discussion of the biggest happenings in the games industry. In the meantime, you can check out all our previous episodes on all good podcasting platforms, and why not like, subscribe and review? It helps more people find the show. You can, as always, find your daily dose of news, insight and analysis into the world behind video games at gamesindustry.biz. Thank you very much for joining us.